When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're denying the reality of what people feel today and what people No, I'm um, not denying today. it. I'm saying that it's misguided. Hello and welcome to the pod and this week it's part two of my Parthenon Marbles discussions and in this episode dear listeners you'll hear the alternative view. My guest is Mario Trabuco della Torretta and as you heard him there in the clip at the beginning with me we go at it hammer and tongs on a debate that we both care passionately about. Mario is a strong proponent of the marbles remaining in the British Museum. Part one with Paul Cartledge and Tessa Dunlop was released back in June so do go back and check that out if you can. Now, importantly, dear listener, Mario and I have had this discussion with mutual respect and friendliness. The chat deals with three disputes, the legal, the aesthetic and the moral arguments. Links to a couple of the articles that Mario mentioned are in the show notes if you want to find out more. Mario is working on a book, so I look forward to reading that. Coming up, I've got the former head of the army, Lord Dannett and Robert Lyman, discussing the future of the army between the world wars and today. I'm chatting the British Empire with Matthew Parker, and there's plenty more great history to come. In the meantime, please share, rate and review if you can, and I'll hand you over to me talking the Parthenon marbles with Mario Trabuco della Torretta. Mario Trabuco della Torretta. I hope I got that right. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And I'm listeners, I, I'm very keen to explain why we've got Mario on, is that in the wake of my chat with Paul Cartledge and Tessa Dunlop about six weeks ago, when we discussed the Parthenon marbles or the Elgin marbles, and I think we can get on to that, Mario, what, what, what we should Absolutely. be calling them. And Mario got in touch and... I'm really pleased he did because uh, whilst and I've, as I freely admitted in that part one of the Parthenon Marbles chat, it was a little bit one-sided with three, all three people on the podcast firmly in favor of returning the marbles. But Mario kindly got in touch with me asking, slightly admonishing me quite, quite rightly that it was a there was a bit of a lack of balance and i am i actually love having a bit of balance so i was so pleased that you did email me and, and so i just want to thank you for that you're very kind and so why don't we kick off with the the question over the name because i think many people certainly when i was growing up i would have called them the elgin marbles and uh, you know up until about 20 years ago i'd say and then we've seen a slight name change now there are specific reasons as to why they should be called the elgin marbles i mean i don't agree with them but but why don't you talk about a little bit about that and then i can maybe give you the um the view of why i think they should be the part absolutely so when we refer to the Elgin marbles, uh, we are referring to a very specific part of uh, the whole set of the Parthenon sculptures. So the Parthenon, as everybody knows, uh, had the frieze going uh, all around the cella, and it had uh, two pediments with all the sculptures from the pediments, uh, and it had all the series of metopies going uh, above the columns all around the temple. Uh, now, alphabet is in, in Athens, more or less, and alphabet is in London. Actually, I would say half and half of what is left, because as, as, as you know, circa one third of whatever was the original consistency of the decoration has been completely lost. Yes, so we will we get on to say, wh- yeah. which, which nationality of the people are responsible for that. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, and so whenever we are talking about the entirety of the decoration, absolutely, we should be used, uh, using the term Parthenon sculptures because we are referring to all the sculptural elements of the Parthenon. But when we are talking about uh, Parthenon sculptures, the next question immediately is, yeah, okay, which part? The part that is in London or the part that is in Athens? So whenever you're talking about the part that is in London, these are the very specific, scientific, and fully established name, which is the Elgin Collection. So the Elgin Marbles, which are part of the Elgin Collection. This Elgin Collection term is even enshrined in the Act of Parliament of 1816 that vested the property, which sits with British people at large, on the trustees of the British Museum. So one of the conditions was that the collection would be called the Elgin Marbles. Therefore, there we have it. It's a, a term that is uh, lawful, it's uh, scientific, and it's specific. Yes, I understand that. And I do think it's interesting, that because, as you say, it was specified in the Act of Parliament for the marbles to be described as the Elgin Collection. But that, I believe that was, that was stipulated by Elgin himself. So perhaps rather a big-headed, ego-driven requirement of his. And he was quite well known for having rather an ego but i think the i think that 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 sh we should mention that but i think another reason why the parthenon marbles is an appropriate name for them is is really because as you say roughly half are in london and half are in athens and so it does really speak to the the issue that we're all dealing with in that they form one building the parthenon and as you say, half half in London, half in, in Greece. So it really does address that issue head on by stating, you know, where they are all based. So I do. But I do understand what you're saying about the Elgin side of things. The other thing I would say is that Elgin himself, these sculptures, and I know as a classical archaeologist yourself, you appreciate their sort of beauty and their um, importance culturally. Sculpted by an incredible sculptor, Phidias, a genius. I mean, I've seen some of his sculptures in Olympia as well, and yeah. and it's ext quite extraordinary. And to me, to have a a minor aristocrat from the early nineteenth century, who and we can get on the legalities of the acquisition, to have him associated with these important cultural marbles seems to me a just rather pig-headed to do it like that it's aesthetically upsetting to to have his name associated with such beauty um i would disagree respectfully because uh, i think there is a little bit of loaded language that is uh, immediately creeping in as soon as we start talking about these things uh, whenever you define, for example, Elgin as a minor aristocrat, I would say it's a little bit of a stretch because uh, it was an earl. Actually, he had two earldoms, <laughs> so it's, it's not exactly uh, uh, nobody. I, I would and, maybe uh, grant you middle ranking. He's not a duke, though. He's not a duke, but then the, 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 there are uh, <laughs> viscounts and barons and lord of the manors below him. So I, I would say, yes, it's the upper middle. And uh, on top of it, uh, it was also elected to be one of the Scottish peers, uh, representing the entirety of uh, the Scottish nobility in the House of Lords in Westminster. Therefore, uh, we have a tendency, whenever we talk about Lord Elgin, uh, to, to use belittling language, because uh, it's a figure that has been uh, much slandered uh, during these past two centuries, and for Lord Byron mainly, and we can go there as well. He had his own uh, particular reasons to do so. But he was a, a successful diplomat. Uh, um, if you look at the career that he had in the army before and uh, in the uh, diplomatic service afterwards, uh, he, he, he had he had been in Berlin, he had been in Paris, he had been in Vienna, and then he ended up being in Constantinople. It was not uh, uh, the kind of career that uh, a minor aristocrat would actually be afforded. And uh, it was one, one career that required a certain level of mastery of his own trade diplomacy, uh, because... Uh, much can be said about uh, naivete when it comes to uh, British people doing something, but definitely not when it comes to guarding their own interests. And uh, uh, definitely in this case, uh, we are talking about them sending 
the top diplomat, the top person for the job in 1799 in the hottest diplomatic theater uh, that there was at the time. We try to discount these and say, no, Elgin was uh, such a bad person. Therefore, in in uh, a bit of a coming back of the Kaloskaya-Gatos kind of uh, ideal, that if you are good, you must be beautiful, and if you are handsome and then fantastic, and if you are uh, bad morally, you must also be terrible uh, physically. You must be given all the possible attributes of... Uh, well, I, 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 I'm not sure I can let you, you say that because Byron, Lord Byron, I think, you know, who would line up on my side of the debate, under no stretch can be considered a, a nice guy. And oh no, <laughs> and so I, I just want to slightly detach the good and bad. I mean, I just think that Elgin, who became the Earl of Elgin through accident of birth rather than through any kind of ability, having his name associated with a man such as Phidias, the genius that was Phidias, who therefore clearly created these these sculptures through his genius through his ability his innate talent that's not something one could argue that elgin necessarily had to become the earl of elgin as you say perhaps he was a an effective diplomat but what is he now known for an act of of taking these sculptures from athens his diplomatic achievements have been rather overshadowed perhaps you would agree with me that if we rename them we can allow Elgin's diplomatic achievements to be to be returned to him. No, I'm, I'm not sure that this is fair, to be honest, because uh, the, the fact of bringing uh, the Elgin marbles uh, to London is an achievement in itself. And it's something that, again, has, has been given a very bad rep uh, all over these past two centuries because of uh, Byron in the beginning, because of uh, a meditated and uh, methodic campaign of slander uh, conducted by the Greek government and uh, the Greek intelligentsia, and uh, in part uh, also the ideologic left, in a way, of uh, even in, in the, the, the the European intelligentsia. Um, so it's been it's been uh, it's been mischaracterized, even in the in these uh, that is uh, as, I, as I was saying uh, a, a brilliant achievement because if you put uh, the man in context and uh, we go with this person that uh, uh, said okay yes I'm I'm going to go to Constantinople I'm going to go to the Orient uh, and uh, I can. Uh, uh, in, in, a man, in a fashion that was uh, entirely appropriate to the time and uh, everybody else in his condition would have done, said, okay, I want to benefit the arts because as I go to Greece, I want to bring something from there. And he was uh, talking at the beginning only about measurement, about drawings, about count. And uh, if you look at the, uh, the, the whole enterprise of the mission, it all goes uh, according to plan up until the opportunity to save not uh, just the measurements uh, and, and the aesthetical attributes of these things, but the things themselves present itself. Then obviously he is the man of the hour and he grasped it. L let's think about what was the Parthenon in uh, July uh, 1801 in Athens in that particular moment. It was a ruin, and not uh, because Hagen had made it so, like uh, probably the man of the street would say to you right now, but uh, it was a ruin because it was a ruin since 1887, when it, it was it was uh, basically blown up by the fortunate shot, as <laughs> Morosini himself uh, dubbed it. And uh, uh, Just for our listeners, that's 1687, I think, when the Venetians... Um, it was being used as a magazine by the Ottomans and Correct. the Venetians, yeah, as you say, had a bit of a, a, a lucky or unlucky shot, lucky shot militarily, unlucky culturally, and it exploded, taking out the center of the, the temple. Yeah, we should yeah. probably say that the, the, the Ottomans, I think it's fair to say the Ottomans did not appreciate the Acropolis for, for what it was historically. It was a stronghold in my opinion times, and so you may well well say that it's gone back to what it was when it was initially settled. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's. But, it's I, but that becomes but... relevant, you see, when when Elgin uh, makes his acquisition, which yes, absolutely, because but... uh, it was a place that was already denatured in a way. It was already spoiled. Uh, so 
he came there just collecting the pieces. And these pieces were... Well, uh, uh, well I, I'm going to have to have you up on that. Uh, when you Absolutely. say he came to collect the pieces, uh, he collected the pieces with saws to cut them off. I, th- I think we need to... Uh, this statement requires a pre- um, uh, precise a little bit because uh, 85% of what Elgin collected, he collected from the ground. And uh, whenever Jonathan Williams uh, went to the UNESCO to uh, talk about uh, the museum perspective, the British Museum perspective on... on this the, is the deputy the director of the British Museum. Absolutely. who's just had to resign uh, uh, over the... Indeed. Um, and entirely can also unconnected. <laughs> it is unconnected, unconnected actually, yes. yeah, but I think it should be. We, yeah, we should we should get onto that. But sorry, yes. carry on. Uh, so, Wim William said quite rightly that much of what Alien collected was collected from the ground. There was uh, uh, a, a brouhaha of people going up in forces and saying, "Oh, he has taken everything from the, from, uh, the walls of the temple." The walls of the temple were not there. But a if substantial amount, was, amount left, was left. sawn off there, Mario. And, so you would accept that? Yes, obviously. He did what everybody was doing before him. This is where I think we can we can look into the legalities of the... Um, yeah, of sure. the at best, they are questionable. Elgin always claimed to have a firman, a, a uh, Ottoman document supposedly signed by the Sultan, but we don't. We the, it certainly doesn't exist today. I think there were translations made. The translation of the translation, that is the English translation of the Italian translation, is uh, appended to uh, as an appendix of the um, the, uh, the report made by the uh, select committee. So you will find it there. There is also a beautiful article by Dieter Williams called Lord Edmund's Firman. And uh, uh, this one uh, will give you nice, four nice big uh, shots of uh, the four pages of the, of the translation, the Italian translation, and uh, the text in Italian and in English. The Firman, there is there's some dispute over whether it's legitimate, even if he was a prime minister. The, the Firman is meant to have been signed by the Sultan. No, it's not, because uh, the Sultan uh, basically makes uh, the Fermans, uh, which are in the, stri- in the strictest sense, uh, the uh, kind of uh, uh, religious kind of directives from the Sultan acting as in his religious capacity of supreme authority over the Muslims of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. So this uh, justifies a little bit of the, uh, of the ambiguity. The problem we have is that basically any single document coming from the port in the 1700s was called the Fairman by any Westerner. For example, Byron mentions his own passport as, I got a Fairman to go. <laughs> and uh, Elgin himself uh, as, as, uh, uh, got a Fairman to get his in-laws to travel safely and get passage to Athens whenever they want to visit so this uh, justifies a little bit of the uh, of the ambiguity in terms of what the document is and uh, um uh, uh, which, which we uh, don't have which we don't have which i mean I, of course i'm not a lawyer but i'd imagine that does present a few legal challenges if the original doesn't exist we don't have the original we have the translation as i said and um, this is a document uh, uh, whose existence is proved by multiple uh, eyewitness accounts uh, contemporary eyewitness accounts uh, of people like edward Odwell, certainly not a friend of elgin's they said ah whatever elgin was uh, able to do was empowered by the firm of the traveling hand and it empowered him to take any mario i'm not i'm not entirely sure you're 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 right about that because the i think a succeeding ambassador to the ottoman empire uh, robert adair he would disagree completely with with elgin i think he stated the the port that is to say absolutely denied you're having any property in those marbles so so it's not true to say that that contemporaries at the time 
were... We are not talking about the same marbles here. That's the problem. Because uh, as demonstrated quite successfully by uh, William Sinclair, um, after uh, the marbles, the, the Hege marbles, the, the Parthenon part of the Hege marbles uh, was uh, successfully kicked off to um, England in uh, between 1801 itself and 1804, then uh, Lucieri remained in Athens, uh, Juan Patrizio Lucieri, the painter and principal um, investigator <laughs> on behalf of uh, Lord Elgin, remained in Athens and continued uh, amassing collections uh, on his behalf. And these collections uh, were successfully uh, um, stored by uh, Lucieri in his own house, and which were in, in, in the port of Piraeus and were uh, ready to, for shipment. But it was stopped by the Ottoman official saying, okay, why, why are you doing this? If you consult uh, um, documents from the Ottoman archives uh, put together by Adam uh, Eldam and by, uh, also seen by Elena Korka uh, and published by both, uh, there are documents from the other side where the officials prepare a report for the Sultan saying, they request the release of these marbles. We have already investigated the question, and there is no, uh, no doubt that they have purchased these marbles. These are marbles that have been purchased. The alien marbles, the Parthenon ones, they were granted, not purchased. Well, so well they, were, they were granted. There, there were, I, I think, as, as we, uh, well, as we've been talking about, there is dispute over the over this uh, this granting. However, Elgin himself put in a claim to the House of Lords for expenses, and in the in the chit that he had written to the House of Lords, he he claimed for presents he had given to uh, the Ottomans to the value of around about two point five million pounds today, which so which yeah, I think yeah, I, it's I think it is perfectly reasonable to view that those presents um which was claimed of the the uk taxpayer as as effective bribes no because so what you are quoting here is uh, uh, the introduction of Catherine Titi new uh, Catherine Titi's new book about uh, the uh, Parthenon Karel and uh, uh, she makes a marvelous blunder because uh, in the note all the prices that are expressed in the shopping list, basically, in presents to the House of Commons, what you see is prices in piastres. They are the Ottoman currency, and all the prices are preceded by a P. This P was misinterpreted by Miss Titi as pounds. And oh, so you accept that they were bribes then? No, I don't accept they were bribes, and I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> so what we are talking about is so 21,900 piastres. Now, a piastre, by uh, uh, Lord Elgin's own account, was uh, at the time one sixteenth of a pound. So we are talking about uh, a quantity that is uh, uh, corresponding to 1,300 and change pounds of the time. Not only that, so forget the 2.25 million, which in, in today's money, which is definitely out of, uh, of the blue and not, not warranted. We are talking about one third of a pound for each one day of these 11 years. Now, this is definitely not a princely sum by any account. But on top of this, she says, uh, Miss Titi says... You, you've read that, her book. Yes, uh, I did. So she says that basically um, uh, this is their bribe to get the Elgin marbles. Now, how come the Elgin gets permission to get the Elgin marbles in 1801, in July 1801, and starts working on that, and then pays the bribe two years after in a comfortable installment plan? As you said at the start, he's a, an, an ambassador, a, a, a well-respected diplomat. Bribes always precede whatever they are. I, I don't allow. pay bribes, not so I'm, I'm, I'm not aware <laughs> not of, of when. Me neither, and neither did Elgin. That's the thing. You really believe that no no payment was passed from Elgin to the Ottoman authorities? 
no bribe whatsoever. There is no evidence, categorically, no historical evidence that allows any historian worth its salt to uh, uh, establish something like this and affirm it uh, with certainty. Just for the listeners' benefit, the book we've been talking about was published, I think, just last year. Beginning of this year, actually. The beginning of this year, the Parthenon Marbles and International Law, and that's written by Catherine Titi. Elgin planned to house the marbles in his private residence. This wasn't no. an altruistic. This- he then ran out of money, uh, probably because of a uh, what we were just talking about, and had to then display them, didn't gain enough money, and then sold them to the British Museum to pay off his debts. That's not accurate, again, because of two reasons. One, uh, Elgin starts negotiations to uh, sell the marbles to the British Museum in March 1806. We have uh, the notes from Charles Abbott, the Speaker of the House of Commons, that basically relates the conversation, and Sir John Banks uh, was then sent to, uh, to, to liaise with Elgin to start uh, a conversation about them. And uh, in 1806, in March 1806, uh, he had not even divorced yet. So he was uh, entirely in uh, uh, possession of his fortune. He was coming off uh, uh, as a prisoner of war from France after a successful stint as the British ambassador that had uh, given back Egypt to the uh, Ottoman ally. So he was uh, at the apex, actually. Of, but I didn't, uh, I didn't say that he had no money from his divorce. Absolutely. This is one of the things that people say most of the time, even in the chronology. The other point is that he had so much money that he basically purchased a home, the Park Lane home, that is the first London house of the marbles. This is the other point uh, to what you were observing, that is, uh, the marbles were meant to go to Broomhall in his residence in Scotland. Not at all, because uh, otherwise he would have shipped them to Scotland. And they were never meant to go to Scotland. They were always meant to stay in London, where everybody could have seen them, and eventually they could be purchased by the British nation. As it- there was, There's no evidence that that was his plan all along. Well, I would disagree. There is evidence uh, instead. There is there's no evidence, evidence that, that it that. happened because it because he eventually sold it to the museum. But there's there's no evidence that that he plans to house it in his private residence and then sell it to the British Museum in in an act of preservation when he first removed the marbles um, in Athens in eighteen um, eighteen oh one. Uh, allow me to disagree again because uh, it's uh, uh, it's actually. What there is no evidence for is uh, the hypothetical destination of these marbles for Scotland, <laughs> or Pipe, where uh, Broomhall House uh, is uh, actually um, uh, the Scottish residence of the uh, Sovereign. Uh, there is zero evidence of this. Uh, there is sometimes people uh, quote or misquote, I would say, a letter from Elgin to Lucieri where uh, Elgin goes uh, around saying, I would like a bit of this, a bit of that. And then they leave out a piece, the, uh, the, the code of the letter, where basically Elgin says, But this is not for my house in Scotland. For these, I need other type, other type of marbles. But obviously, it's very convenient to quote uh, evidence up to an extent. I understand that they are common tricks and they get done and used all the time. But if you go and read the entire letter, actually, you can exclude that those marbles were ever meant to reach Scotland. I just want to shift the conversation because I think we've been talking about the acquisition for quite some time. And that really deals with the legality. And I've mentioned the Catherine Titi book. She's obviously looks into the legal reasons behind the whole acquisition. But just shifting it all along from the, the legal and nitty gritty, there are aesthetic reasons which are quite powerful as to why the marbles should be reunited. In, I see the point. In, in, and in particular, the... yeah. So I just want to j- break them down briefly for the listeners, yes. just so they're aware. I mean, there are many pieces... There's, I think, the statue of Isis. There's a statue of Poseidon. There are examples where you have a head in London. I always get this mixed up, actually. A head in London and the body in in Athens. Or vice versa, yeah. yeah, Or vice versa. You have the front of a procession in in Athens, the rear in London. So that's the most obvious 
I guess, aesthetic reason as to why they should be reunited. Secondly, the layout in the British Museum is just all mixed up and in the wrong place. And then, of course, you have the new Acropolis Museum, which is a a beautiful building. And uh, you clearly don't like it, but it's not just me saying that. There are plenty of people who know a lot more about these things than I do, who lord the new, uh, 2009, I think it opened. Correct. Yeah. In that museum, the marbles are placed in such a position where you can see the Acropolis from the museum with that gorgeous, and you as an Italian will agree with me here, that gorgeous Mediterranean light shining onto the, <laughs> uh, the, the ancient marble. And so these rather strong aesthetic reasons are often given as to why they should be reunited. The, the British Museum... The room in the the British Museum is, it's, I always used to be in awe when I walked into that room and it becomes, having visited the Acropolis Museum, it's lost its luster, the museum. It's, <laughs> it's a bit, it's, there's no windows. It's, um, it's rather gray. Surely that's a strong reason for them to re- be reunited. So I, I understand uh, obviously the uh, aesthetical proposition, uh, but uh, I would argue some uh, three counterpoints, if you allow me. And the first one is uh, about uh, the integrity of the of, of the personal sculptures. So as we were saying in the very beginning, we don't have anymore one-third sculptures that have been either uh, blown up or converted into lime mortar by the Ottomans or re-sculpted and recarved to make, for example, uh, headstones uh, by the garrison during the course of a couple of centuries. Yes, the Ottomans, Um, just sorry, sorry, Mario, uh, I know you're in flow, please forgive me. Just just for the benefit of the listeners, the Ottomans are uh, uh, occupying power. Um, so no, nothing like Don't go um, there. <laughs> nothing, nothing like Greece today. Let's go to the occupying power a little bit further down the line because okay. uh, uh, th- that's another point that's extremely contentious. We don't have one third of the sculptures anymore, but also there is an argument to say that the sculptures belong to the building. And so uh, the, the, being obviously architectural decoration, they have basically no sense without the building. So what we are saying is that we want to put uh, only one side of the sculptures together with the other third, but not together with the building. Now, that's a point that is quite important because the first UNESCO recommendation was actually to do precisely that, unify the sculptures with the building, which now everybody since 93 uh, onwards, so since when the Greeks uh, actually uh, themselves uh, decided uh, in, in their wisdom to uh, take them, uh, the remaining personal sculptures away from the Parthenon, house them in the old Acropolis Museum back then, we, we know that this is definitely not possible. And in a way, copies would be way more apt uh, uh, to replace uh, uh, the sculptures in the proper place uh, on the building than the original ever could. Yeah, as as you say, it's it's not just not possible. So it's not possible. So it, we, we must forget about uh, these uh, chimera of the integrity of the personal sculptures. And uh, on the other side, what you do is uh, you basically break out uh, uh, the, the marbles from their new historical context. So you are basically doing an act of cultural vandalism today when we know what this means. I I don't understand how you can call reuniting marbles that were together back together and call that vandalism. Because you do uh, uh, break up a new cultural context for a political reason and without a substantial cultural gain on the other side. As I've just mentioned, this is for aesthetic reasons. This is an aesthetic purpose. It's not not for a political purpose. I mean, there are political arguments you can have, but aesthetically... In in this discussion, the moral, the the ethical and the aesthetic, and uh, uh, they they are all intertwined. We cannot uh, just go from one uh, 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 to the other and say, okay, no, they are silos. And so it's it's perfectly legitimate to find on aesthetic ground, but not on moral grounds, not on legal grounds. 
and then that's all. We'll do it all the same. No, no, no. I understand. Yeah. But if you but if you're arguing that they should remain apart for aesthetic reasons, you can't then yeah. bring in a political reason as to why. It has no, to no. Be, I, are I, you I'm saying, saying aesthetically that, that you agree, but politically you don't? I'm saying uh, if there was no history and they were, uh, uh, I don't know, dumped somewhere in Greece, uh, uh, then uh, I would say yes, by all means, uh, reunite, uh, re- reunite them today. But uh, this is not the case. What we are talking about is breaking up something that is uh, that, that, that has had its own ripple effect in the cultural history of uh, Britain and the West in so many ways, on the artistic side, um, just think of all, all the artists that have been inspired by uh, the Elgin Marbles being in London and seeing them in that particular context in Bloomsbury. But that history isn't destroyed by them being returned. Well, those, those artists were still inspired. And and let me let me ask you if one of the reasons why the marbles have not been returned is is because the, the Greek government refuses to accept the legal ownership from the British government, and and so that's why there's been no loan agreement as as there was with the museum in St Petersburg. Rather saddening that that occurred after the invasion of Ukraine. But let's move on. We don't want to get bogged down by that. But were the Greek government to accept the legal ownership? Then they long, would be happy to loan the, the, the marbles be... on a long-term basis. So, therefore, that would long. would that destroy the historians and the artists who've been inspired? Would that be an act of cultural vandalism? A loan is by its own nature temporary, so it's a temporary displacement. And it's a museum. Oh, well, well, a hundred-year long-term loan. I would not uh, presume that the British Museum is willing to loan <laughs> the Elgin Marbles for such a long time. The trustees, as far as we can tell, are con- contemplating yeah. a long-term loan whereby continued negotiations, then the UK government signs an act of parliament, therefore making the loan. I don't see this happening anytime soon. Anytime soon. I think Whenever you're probably museums, right. It's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever museums think about a loan, uh, a long-term loan, they think about 10 years, not 100 years. This is a unique case. The reason to reunify the marbles uh, is because they are part of the monument that is still standing and it's uh, a, um, a part of the UNESCO World Heritage List. The problem is that, that this is not the only uh, case where this happens. Think about, uh, the, without going too far, the caveated of the Erechtheion. It's exactly in the same conditions as the Elgin Marbles, and yet they don't ask for it. How come? Then uh, uh, well, about, I would uh, I would say the reason that they don't is that the Parthenon, more than the Eric Theum, is within the cultural soul of Greece. The Parthenon, of all the buildings in part of Pericles' building program, was the most prominent. It's Goddess. the biggest one. So it's uh, more in, instead it should be interpreted as uh, a, a thesaurus. So basically a, a treasure house like uh, many uh, Hellenic sanctuaries have, where people basically would collect uh, all the offerings to the gods. I don't even think that that really changes the debate in any way whatsoever, because it's there for its its cultural significance. You know, the sculptures, the the frieze, what's depicted. Is it the numbers of men killed in the Battle of Marathon? Is it? You see what I'm saying? Is it? That is why it's so significant. It's for its cultural power. It's not because it was a temple or was treasury in the fifth century BC. It's because of yeah, its cultural importance to Greeks. Absolutely, but it, the, more more than the Erechtheion. This cultural importance is a cultural importance for the modern Greeks, not for the ancient one. For example, reflect on this fact. There are so it's almost. I know we don't, but the monument is coming from there. We're, we're talking Athens' golden age from the 5th century. <laughs> It's Absolutely. a symbol of, of the 5th century Athens. It, it replaces political power with cultural power. And so... Basically, we have the myth of Athens being uh, the, the, the best and foremost of the entire Greece, 
Uh, well, actually, I would uh, argue of all of antiquity. You, you as an Italian would probably disagree with me. It, it depends what we're talking about. For example, uh, Syracuse was uh, a city that arguably was as important as Athens. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm not it, surprised it, it you're, you're more. <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> no, but I just want to... I think that's a bit of a red herring because it is viewed... You can't deny reality today. And I'm not just talking about Greeks. I'm talking about anyone interested in ancient in Athens. Any, <clears throat> any, anyone that has been educated in the West or in the Western tradition would be accustomed basically to put the Parthenon in this kind of uh, uh, special place. Yeah. So it was placed actually uh, by English scholars uh, on the back of again bringing the, mar- the, the, the marbles over and uh, never left I, I don't think anyone could disagree with that but that Absolutely. doesn't change the fact that that is the reason why so many not everyone so many want want them returned and unified yes but reunified. the reason is a political reason it's not a cultural one but, but i don't think i but i don't think anyone would ever deny that you can't separate the imperial power that athens was in the 5th century from its art it was an expression of their power so yeah it was uh, and, and it was when athens was at its most powerful so you can understand yes, it was why. powerful but I, if, I feel like you're kind of things. denying you're denying the reality of what people feel today and po- what people no i'm um, not think denying today. it i'm saying that it's misguided is uh, an historiographical myth that has been yes. created uh, for a political purpose i understand what you're saying I'm just saying that that almost it's all in our head. <laughs> As we've established for the aesthetic reasons, which are quite powerful. No, because if we were to establish or to to uh, so it's not just political. Is my point. For aesthetical, mm, I, I don't buy the aesthetic reason because the problem is that if it were uh, uh, all about aesthetics, uh, they would build a nice, beautiful canopy on top of the Parthenon and would put the sculpture there, not in a museum three hundred meters away from it, or in, in a museum, you know, a fifteen hundred miles away from it what 1500 or 15 doesn't matter doesn't make any difference it's the fact well actually i don't agree i i don't think we're going to well obviously we're not going to agree but i (laughs) but i think having them so close where you do see the sun the gorgeous mediterranean sun on that marble that is just looks almost it's extraordinary with the light and in and in that the the museum that you're that you're not so keen on, which places the Parthenon, uh, the, the pieces in their correct order, which the British Museum doesn't do. Look, we've let, done let, let's talk about the museum uh, for, for a moment, because it's, it's an interesting point that you, you made. Yes, I agree that the Acropolis Museum is a very modern museum that has all the facilities, uh, that doesn't have any leaking, and uh, that, uh, that does have beautiful windows, etc., etc. But uh, it's, a, mon- it's, it's um, uh, a museum that has been built in 2009, as we were talking, uh, uh, as we were saying uh, minutes ago. Uh, on the other side, uh, the British Museum, in the display of the game marbles in the British Museum, are much, much older. The, dis- the way we are uh, looking at the British the Aegean marbles in the British Museum in the Duvian Gallery right now has been designed in the early 30s. So, of course, there is a very big difference in the way they are displayed. And if we were making a new museum, uh, maybe a thrill open at some point, uh, a new display in the British Museum nowadays in the 21st century, of course they will be displayed in a very different way. Well, Mario, we don't need to. There's one in Athens already. <laughs> we don't need the, the, the one in Athens. The one in Athens, on the other side, is a very ideological museum. Uh, the, 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 the very way it has been defined is a way that basically says, okay, let's start from art. We're going over time, so we'll, we'll probably Absolutely. I'll only give it another 10 <laughs> we minutes. We could stay forever. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think we could. Um, but so, so we've done the kind of legal, we've talked about the aesthetic. Yep. There is this moral argument, which is given and and one thing I should mention, actually, is that when we get polling, I'm sure in polling in Greece is obviously heavily in favour of their return. Once oh, in 2014. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Astonishing. But I think even in this country, in Britain, I know there was a poll done this year, but full detail of the results hasn't been released. But there was yeah, the a poll by YouGov in 2021 yeah. where 59%. I was looking at the figures of this poll. It's actually very interesting. When you drill into the socioeconomic categories of the participants of the poll, but it polled 7,700 people. That's a lot for a poll, YouGov yeah. poll. 
The results were that 59% of Britons believe that the marbles should be returned. 18% said that they should remain and, and 22% 22% weren't sure, didn't know. And so I think that leaves 1% if my maths is right. And I assume they didn't pick up a phone or something. But anyway, um, <laughs> seven, there, there is a... But what's quite interesting is across all socioeconomic groups, the numbers I've just given are replicated. The only real deferential, which I was quite surprised about, was in the age of people. The younger people are less in favour of return. I mean, they're still in favour of return, so heavily, uh, yeah, the, but less than yeah, yeah, the corresponding other cars. Yeah, no, yeah, because I, I this speaks to a well. because this speaks to a, an issue that I believe this is separate to the the whole culture war debate, whereby we're talking about returning all museums artifacts to their original location. I don't sign up to that belief, that kind of argument, and that's what I was thinking when I was looking at these poll numbers. But I, this argument about returning the marbles predates these relatively recent culture wars driven by Twitter and, and things like that. I mean, you know, we've mentioned Byron as well. Within a few years was writing poems about how the marbles, he didn't like their removal. And I think the newly independent Greek government, there's a... Um, were requesting the marbles within not long after they gained independence from the Ottoman Empire. So would you agree that it's separate to the cultural war, culture wars that we see today? They are different cultural wars in a way. Um, they are definitely separate from uh, the, the the cultural war that we are uh, accustomed to, 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 to call them right now. But uh, only up to an extent, because if you think about uh, uh, the whole restitution querelle, it's all based on the idea that there are populations that have been wronged and therefore we have some moral obligation to give back something that was taken in, in an unlawful, and some other people say unethical way. The problem uh, with the moral case, uh, and that's why I, I actually defined it in, on an article, uh, uh, the immoral case for restitution, is that basically trumps legality. It's only, you, it's only UK no, no, to no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking, uh, generally speaking, uh, I'm talking about international law, okay, for example. And... When it comes to, uh, to the marble, we have an aspect that is about the legitimacy of the permission that was given, and uh, you were mentioning the occupying power. They, they were not occupying anything, because an occupation in international law is clearly defined. Well, we had the Greek War of Independence beginning in 1821. Yeah, 20 years ago after again. So how could he possibly know that? And how no, no, I'm, I'm not saying he knew that there would be a war of independence. I'm, saying, I'm, I'm talking to your point about the Ottoman Empire not being an occupying power. I'm saying that if they weren't an occupying power, why was there a Greek war of independence that lasted for eight years beginning in 1821? Do you think that... Uh, uh, England is occupying Scotland or Wales. It's an act of union voted for by the Scottish Parliament. So it was a it was a democratic unification. The act of union is for Scotland, but not for Wales. There is no such act of, act of union for okay, Wales. Okay, well we're going it we're going a, a long way back to, to, well. to England and Wales. There is a Plaid Cymru, a, a Welsh nationalist party that if anyone oh, wants yes, to vote for, they can vote for them, and they'll they they would separate from from England. That's not the case with the Ottoman Empire and Greece. And morally, I don't. Don't think you can hide behind the well it was a under international law the occupation was permitted and what i find inside immoral is uh, judging somebody based on something that uh, you could not possibly have known the law and the sensibility i don't think we're judging elgin here we're talking about i think we're talking about returning the marbles and as i say this is an argument that's been raging Almost hundred years, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's contemporaneous. Yeah, um, although the, the, you may argue that the the the, the, the reversal of fortunes of the two positions, because when uh, the, there was a debate in the select committee, uh, the, the vote went eighty votes for the acquisition and thirty is and thirty against the acquisition. If we were to do the same kind of count right now, probably would go exactly the opposite. Way. I think they're uh, in many cases agreeing with what people were saying at the time in that this... Which then is the minority of people at the time, because Byron... Well, they didn't have YouGov, so we don't really know. 
I almost think you can you can separate the the acquisition and really talk about a um, an argument that this is an opportunity for Britain to Greece is an ally of ours. This yeah. is an opportunity for us to use a piece of soft power that would make a firm step in a direction of international friendship and 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 therefore would gain gain a bit of um positivity exactly. in britain that doesn't cost the country anything with the british museum i think only shows 10% of its uh, artifacts every museum shows only indeed, indeed. you free up a nice big room and for all those artifacts that they pretty sure they have they're probably mm-hmm. not entirely sure because they haven't done their cataloging we haven't even got on to whether the BM. Oh no! Yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually, it's, it's it's awful for the the Greek government have behaved very well. Have not immediately <laughs> gone on the airwaves and argued that this is a reason for the return of the marbles. I think quite rightly. Yeah, they stopped just before. Lina Mandoni, the, the, the Greek Minister of Culture, has been very very skillful as she always is as a politician, of course. It's a sensible move. And uh, this is an opportunity for uh, Britain to gain other artifacts held by Greece. You could say the Mask of Agamemnon, perhaps, could be on 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 display in the uh, in the Elgin uh, in place of the Elgin marbles. Things like that that we haven't seen Absolutely. in this country be but a wonderful opportunity. Is, uh... And at the same time, we gain the, through soft power. The vast majority of British people are happy. The vast majority of Greeks are happy. Mario is not happy. I understand that. <laughs> you say it's a win-win. I say it's not because basically what you are saying is that the museum, instead of being a place where we study and display our own identity and what make us what we are, is instead a place of entertainment where we should take in blockbuster exhibitions, entertain people, and we are done with it. But that would mean you wouldn't trust the curator of the British Museum, whereas I would trust the curators of the British Museum to pick exhibits that would be a very huge cultural significance and would show us who we are. I wouldn't just assume, you know, they're going to replace it with a, I don't know, a Damien Hirst exhibition showing the well. 1990s. <laughs> If you, if you let George Osborne lose, I, I presume that you may end up in, with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mario, look, this has been uh, it's been a Bye. long conversation, but I want to thank you for for coming on. Is and I want to put links in the show notes for any publications that you're going to send me and. So listeners can read up further if they like. But I've really enjoyed chatting today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening, whatever your view of the marbles. Plenty more great history to come, as I mentioned at the start. And on Tuesday, I have a bonus on the history of running. So until then, thank you and good night.